0: To all supernatural scrutineers and paranormal postulants, I bid you welcome. You are about to listen to the Occultaria of Albion audio tales. What is the Occultaria of Albion, you inquire? Is it a hauntological exploration of strange phenomena? Is it a world where the abnormal and arcane exist in abundance? The answer to these questions is yes and yes explore our publications and other material by going to occulteriaofalbion.com now lie back and relax if you can <laughs> Terrier of Arbion, Audio Tales. Night Thing Now that Gary had turned the ignition off, a sudden cold had crept into the Cortina, and he wondered if Ruth would still want to go ahead with it. Unsure at what to say, he looked over to her in the passenger seat, the throbbing strain in his jeans beginning to wilt with the uncertainty. Ruth was smiling. Starting to lose your nerve, are you? she asked him. No, he laughed. Even in the low yellow glow of the interior light, her eyes sparkled. Ruth Pollard was his girlfriend, and she was incredible. Gary was about to tell her this, but she leaned in and kissed him before he could say anything. Ruth loved how his stubble would scratch at her. It made her wild when it caught the softness of her neck. She kissed him harder and reached her hand down to the swelling at the front of his denims. Gary groaned, and the cold seemed to vanish. "'I'll get the blanket from the boot,' he told her. A moment later, they were leaving the car and walking into the woods." Ruth carried the blanket wrapped about her and Gary shone the torch ahead of them. The blanket smelt of fresh lavender because Gary's mum had washed it just the other week. Ruth laughed when he explained why it was so clean and fresh. For once she was glad that his mother was such a fusspot. She would certainly be aghast at what they were about to use the blanket for. Having sex outdoors was something Ruth had suggested to Gary a few weeks ago when they were down the pub together. They were talking and Ruth had told him about one time with her first proper boyfriend the summer before he went off to university. They had done it outdoors whilst on a picnic one August afternoon. It was in a wheat field. She had told Gary the experience was hot and sexy but really it was awkward and fumbling and she wanted to try it again now she was older and with Gary who really did make her feel out of this world. When Ruth first told Gary about her Wheatfield experience with a boy named Lance, his initial feeling was one of jealousy. He realised how ridiculous it was, but he couldn't help it. When Ruth asked him, he told her he'd never done anything like that, which was true. He'd had an encounter with a girl one night round the back of the ball bearing factory, but it wasn't the same as a summer's afternoon in a Wheatfield. Yes, he told Ruth, he was definitely up for a bit of outdoor nookie. Neither of them mentioned it again and a few weeks had gone by. Then, on this mild March night, Gary had picked her up and they'd gone for a drive with nothing much else to do. They drove and Gary played his Def Leopard cassette until they stopped and began making out. That's when Ruth reminded him of their plan and Gary suggested that they go to Cobbington Woods. It wasn't far, no one would be around and the woods were magical, at least as magical as a wheat field, he thought. The torch beam cut a path through the trees, their two pairs of shoes crunching and crackling on leaves and twigs as they went. Ruth held Gary's hand, happy to be pulled along by him and to take in his scent. It was a warm, leathery smell with notes of sweat and cologne and cigarettes, and it made her feel aroused and sheltered all at once. It even cut through the flowery detergent smell of the blanket. Here? Asked Gary. Moving the torch about a small clearing that they had come upon? Ruth did not answer. Like a vampire, she held her arms out and enveloped him in the blanket, and they kissed again, hands finding warmth and fingers scrambling inside each other's clothes. They tumbled to the ground, groaning and giggling. Gary ignored the discomfort of the earth on his hips and back. His hand had quickly unbuttoned Ruth's jeans, and his fingertips were at the silk of her knickers when Ruth stopped. Wait! she whispered, her own hand freezing on Gary's bulge. Gary stopped, confused. ''What's wrong?'' he said, also in whisper. ''I heard something,'' she told him. ''It was my breathing,'' he said. ''You've got me all excited.'' He licked at her neck. ''Shh!'' She squeezed his erection more forcefully to stop him. ''Just be quiet.'' Ruth pushed the blanket away from their heads. They both waited, Gary dared not say anything. I swear I heard something, Ruth told him again. It's probably a badger, Gary said, turning quickly then so that he was on top of Ruth, smiling down at her. Should we carry on playing Hunt the Torch? He kissed at her neck and made an animal-like yowl in her ear. You mean before your battery goes flat, she said, clutching playfully at his buttocks. They kissed each other, but then the noise came again. They both heard it and sat up. That's no bloody badger, Ruth told him. Gary grabbed the torch from the leafy ground and clicked it on, pointing it ahead of them. Its crisp, white beam only illuminated the statuesque tree trunks and the labyrinth of bracken and ferns between them. Nothing moved. Poachers? Gary suggested. He moved the torch about. Perverts, more like, Ruth replied. The silence hovered in the air and then came the noise again, quieter than before but nearer. Shit, said Gary. In the darkness appeared two green eyes looking at them both. It was a glowing green, the colour of a child's Halloween toy. The two eyes narrowed and Gary knew they were evil. Ruth knew it too and grabbed hold of the blanket as if it would provide some sort of protection to her and her boyfriend. The creature leapt from the trees as if the forest had spat it out, ejecting something abnormal. It moved with precision and fury, landing on top of the two strange animals. Immediately they began to scream, and immediately the beast began to claw and bite. Had there been anyone nearby, they would have heard the harrowing cries of Ruth and Gary but there was no one, and their screams went unheard. A man in a grubby army jacket and jeans trudged along the empty road. He felt how isolated everything was. He hadn't even been able to catch a lift from all the passing lorries back at the roundabout. He stood invisible, or like a phantom, with his arm out, but no one stopped. Instead, he had a long lonely walk to the edge of the large forest which the road cut through. The recent rain had caused the scent of the forest and the earth to rise and hang in the air in a similar way that the odor of his socks would after a day of marching. There was a name for it, the way the earth smelt after rain, and he tried hard to remember what it was. As he contemplated this, a Land Rover appeared on the road ahead of him and slowed down as it approached. It stopped, and a young man behind the wheel rolled the window down. Casey? the man asked. He nodded. Get in, he told him. The boss is waiting for you. He did as was asked, and the Land Rover set off again. It's not too far to the compound. Casey said nothing, and kept his eyes on the tarmac ahead. It's been bonkers round here since what happened, the driver went on. His passenger remained silent. Anyway, you hear here now. He glanced over at Casey, who didn't appear to have heard him. They drove on with only the dogged noise of the engine until, on their left, there was a gap in the trees and a dirt track. They turned onto it and rumbled along until the track opened out into a courtyard of porter cabins, bounded by high fencing with barbed wire crowning it. Casey got out and was pointed toward a cabin. On its door was a board which read, Management Office. Inside, another young man greeted him, asked his name, and then took him through to a room which had a large map of the forest on the wall, some filing cabinets, and a large oak desk behind which sat a woman with short back-combed hair, rigidly sprayed into place. She looked up from her work when Casey was brought in, "'George Casey, ma'am,' the young man informed her before leaving. The woman stood. She was short and wore a zebra-striped blouse, which was about all the glamour the place had to offer. She stood and gestured for the man in front of her to sit. "'George Casey,' she said, finding a piece of paper from the array of paper in front of her. "'We were expecting you yesterday.' "'I got here as soon as I could,' he told her. "'Well?' You're with us now, she said, sitting down. My name is Dr Miriam Costello. I'm in charge of operations here on behalf of the Woodland Authority. George Casey continued to look at her, but didn't speak. You understand why you're here, she asked. Because you have a gremlin. George remained stiff in his chair. That's one way of putting it, she said, opening a drawer and pulling out half a dozen five-by-seven photographs. She tossed them on the desk and nodded for George to look. Young couple having outdoor congress, Costello said awkwardly. The photos were gruesome. A man and a girl with lacerations on their upper bodies, their faces a bloody and torn mess. Dead? George asked. Unbelievably, no. The thing that attacked them changed its mind, it seems. We think it might be the detergent on the blanket they were using that put the creature off. It probably saved their lives. We got them out of the woods and managed to get them stabilised. Our legal people are working now to settle things and keep the incident quiet. It's a hell of a mess. I can see that, George said, pushing the photographs back toward the other papers. It must be difficult for you and the lawyers. A smile flickered across his face for just a moment. Costello sat back with a glare. I know nothing about you, Mr Casey. Higher powers have taken the decision to get someone like you in. Someone like me, he asked. You're a ghost, a phantom, with nothing to connect you to Cobbington Woods or the Woodland Authority. I take it you've done this kind of thing before. I take it you have served Ireland and elsewhere. Costello nodded. Casey took out a cigarette. Tell me more about your creature. Creature. Have you ever heard of a company called Newshore, Mr Casey? Costello took an ashtray from another drawer and placed it in front of him. He tapped his ash and shook his head. Few people have, Costello went on, which is how they prefer it. Newshore stands for the Nutriment and Sustenance Research Company. It's a contract organisation, which means they provide support to the pharmaceutical, biotechnological and medical industries in the form of research services. They have a facility a few miles away. About 13 years ago, in February of 1970, it was attacked by a group of environmental saboteurs. Fairly amateurish I believe, but they managed to cause havoc and set light to the place. They thought they were stopping New pesticides research, which they probably did for a short while. The problem was, New Shore were involved in something else as well. Top-secret research involving genetics and genetic modifications. Like Frankenstein, Casey interrupted. Hmm, it's a lazy and inaccurate analogy, but yes, Frankenstein does evoke a sense of the horror. These saboteurs allow genetically altered creatures to escape. Cat-like creatures, akin to a leopard or a bakuta. Ferocious apex predators of which very little was understood and one such creature eventually found its way to Cobbington Woods, where it appears to have settled. You mean, some monstrous tiger has been living in those woods for 13 years? It isn't a tiger, but yes, 13 years. Of course, nobody knew at first. There were odd sightings and farmers complaining of sheep or deer being found torn up, but with no real encounters to speak of, it became something of a urban legend. Well, that looks like a real encounter. Casey pointed at the photographs. How many others have been attacked? Costello sighed. About three months ago, an evening dog walker witnessed their dog being torn up by the creature. Then, more recently, one of our biologists saw the thing. By the time he could raise the alarm, it disappeared. And now this. Casey shook his head. How have you been allowed to get away with it? The Woodland Authority only took charge of Cobbington two years ago, Costello responded. This wood has been designated a scientific research zone. No one here took an urban legend about a spectral bee seriously, at first. However, the powers that be have now decided that the creature has become too much of a liability, and so it's to be dispatched. You, Mr Casey, are simply a cross T or a dotted I. Casey stubbed out his cigarette. I've been less than that before. As I said, you are a phantom with no connection to the Woodland Authority or New Shore, Costello went on. Should anyone wish to dig deeper into this affair, they will find no trail that connects us to you. And we can continue to deny the existence of any creature and any associated liabilities. Of course, the continuation of the urban myth will help to keep the general public wary of trespassing and threatening your important scientific research, Casey added. Just so, Costello smiled. Casey's eyes moved to the large map of the woods on the far wall behind Costello. May I have a closer look, he asked, gesturing at the map. Of course. Casey got up and walked to the other side of the office. Those red dots are the recent sightings and attacks, Costello told him. She checked her watch, then pressed a button on the intercom on her desk. It has quite a sizeable territory, if these dots are anything to go by, he said. If we could get down to business, Mr Casey, we do have a map for you with all the crucial information. Fine. Casey was already tiring of Dr Miriam Costello. The office door opened then, and a lady walked in carrying a leather briefcase. She was the opposite of Costello, tall and even less glamorous, wearing army fatigues. Her dark eyes stared relentlessly at Casey, with no trace of a smile. This is Miss Kinbra, Costello informed him. She is the representative for Newshore. I thought this was a Woodland Authority set-up, Casey glared back at Kinbra. We feel that this situation would be best resolved as a joint enterprise between ourselves and Newshore, Costello stood and gestured for the other woman to place the briefcase on the desk. Casey wanted to leave there and then, and get out of the stuffy office, away from the two autocrats, but then the briefcase was clicked open and he saw the money. As per the arrangement, Costello told him, five thousand payable on extermination of the creature. And you need a carcass, he asked, his eyes moved from the money back to Costello, a complete carcass. We want enough of the creature that there can be no doubt, Kinbra spoke for the first time. If you remove a paw or a tooth as evidence, it will be insufficient and there can be no payment. She closed the briefcase and looked at Costello. We would like to study the cadaver. Uh, You will see on your map, Costello went on, that there is a radio tower in the woods. Once you've completed your mission, all you need do is contact us here via the tower and we will send someone to you. Once we have visual proof of the dead creature, you will get your money. And how many of your people are going to be out in the woods, getting in my way? Casey said. Costello smiled. All our science teams are being withdrawn as we speak. This is your show, Mr Casey. You'll be entirely on your own. Casey nodded. Just be ready with my money. They left the office and Costello took Casey to another porter cabin. Miss Kinborough disappeared at some point and when he noticed, Casey felt relieved. He wanted to be away from the whole base and its ambience of unease. Everyone he realised had a twitchiness about them. Casey had come across it before, of course, before a deployment or prior to a mission but this felt different, like everyone had seen a ghost. He wondered if that's what this creature was some sort of phantasm in the second port cabin all the equipment that casey would need was laid out for him there was a small tent ration packs a .375 bolt-action rifle and a large hunting knife all of this should meet your needs costello told him and naturally the weapons are untraceable she looked again at her watch "'We can give you some time to check over everything "'and look at the intel that we have,' she gestured to a ring-binder. "'Is there anything else you will require?' "'A cup of tea would be nice, Miriam,' he winked. "'And maybe a sandwich. "'Don't like to start these things on an empty stomach.'" Cobbington Woods embraced George Casey like he was just another animal, he began walking with his back to the compound and felt relieved to be leaving it behind, despite what lay before him. Petrichor, he remembered. That was the word for the way the earth smelt after rain, and he was surrounded by it now. Once he had gone far enough into the woods so that nothing of the compound could be seen, he took his pack off and laid on the mulchy ground. He rolled and enveloped himself in the dirt and decay and deep hummus of the forest floor. He bathed and rubbed the dark material over his face and hair. After a few minutes he stopped and lay still and listened to the noise of the woods, its silence and distant birdsong and its creaks and groans. Finally, he got up, checked his map once more and continued to head toward what looked to be the hunting ground of the creature. The day's light was already beginning to fade as he trudged along. The creature, wherever it was, would be stirring. It was a thing of the night, just as he was. George never slept, not properly. Sooner or later, bad dreams would always come to disturb him, and he would wrestle with the ghosts of enemies and the ghosts of himself. Every night would bring another dance with shadows, but now, on this night, he thought at least the shadow would become real and could be put down with a hot bullet or a cold blade. It was these thoughts which kept him moving forward. He retrieved the night vision goggles from his pack and continued walking into the wooded gloaming. Before he had left the compound, Dr Costello had given him one other thing. From our associates at Newshaw, she told him, handing over six dark plastic tubes They looked like black glow sticks. When broken, George was told, they would emit a scent which, the New Shore scientists predicted, should attract the creature, as far as they could tell from what they knew of the thing. Casey took out the first one, cracked it as instructed, and tossed it to the ground. He couldn't smell a thing, and wasn't convinced that it would make any difference. Nonetheless, he created a perimeter with the remaining five sticks, and then settled down against the broad trunk of an oak tree and waited with the rifle in his hand and the knife at his side. In the dark and the stillness, time just like everything else connected to the woods, became demented and slipped its harness so that Casey could not tell how long he had been there. Then something moved, distant at first but slowly circling closer. Casey felt a change in the air, as if the wood began to hold its breath. Very slowly, he moved the rifle into a firing position. The darkness quivered, and then two green eyes were ahead of him, hovering in the black. His finger kissed the trigger, and the explosion of a bullet lacerated the night. (coughs) The creature leapt toward the oak tree. It was a large cat. Dark in colour and spotted with green marks like the eye spots on a butterfly wing. His claws slashed, but only hacked at the tree. Casey had gone. He'd rolled to the left, then scurried low on the ground and was already poised for a second shot. The rifle flashed again and struck the beast on its flank near the shoulder. (coughs) It did not seem to register the hit and readjusted its weight and power in only a moment. Casey had barely taken a breath when the thing had turned and leapt several feet and was upon him. Its eyes glowed brighter, pupilless and a vivid algae green. Teeth and claws had the power of a machine and hunted desperately to tear at Casey's flesh. Casey squirmed as a talon glanced his cheek and neck and then felt the pain as another claw pierced his leg. With the strength the pain had given him, he managed to turn and pull away from the cat. Now he was able to readjust, and grasped at the knife that was by his side. The monster came again, but Casey thrust the knife deep into its neck. The thing made a gurgling hiss, and swiped a paw about Casey's head, cutting him across the face. He grasped at the knife, pulling it free, and then stuck it again into the flesh of the demon cat. Casey was able to scramble away, and picked up the rifle. He aimed, but did not shoot. He and the cat stood facing one another. The cat did not attack now. Green blood streamed from its wound, the knife still in place, its eyes still locked on Casey, but dimmed. Both man and creature breathed with pain. Casey's whole body shook, and eventually, he lowered the gun. Finally, the back legs of the cat gave out. It stumbled, and toppled to the ground, dead. Casey stood a moment longer, then dropped the gun. He staggered to the body of the beast and fell next to it, resting himself against its side, still warm, still humming with the residue of a supreme force. Casey's bloodied hand stroked the corpse in a rhythm that matched his own heartbeat, until the adrenaline evaporated from his body, and he passed out. On opening his eyes, he found it was morning, the sun not yet warm and the light still delicate. He had laid with the cat all night, and even without the darkness the thing did not seem real, and did not seem alive nor dead, though it was, and its green blood had congealed to a brownish gunk. Casey stood and his body throbbed. Very slowly he began to walk away, giving a final look to the thing he had killed before turning his back and pushing his way through the ferns and bracken. He left the rifle where he had dropped it. He limped in the direction of the radio mast, feeling empty and uncertain whether it was a good emptiness or not. As he walked, the only conclusion his brain could reach was that it was an emptiness like a tree in winter. He came to the clearing where there was the thin ironwork of a tower rising upward. It had a dish at its top And a metallic box containing a telephone at the base as he came toward the tower he noticed a figure on the edge of the clearing they were tall and wore army fatigues it was Kimbra. stood as she had been the day before unsmiling it's done casey told her where she called back casey gestured with his head back that way I've marked where you'll find it on the map we'll get a team out before it's scavenged by other creatures she said with a nod Casey leaned against the tower for support nothing will touch that thing he told her breathing heavily she didn't appear to be listening that's all we needed she said raising the gun that was in her right hand we're done the shot rang out In the distance, birds scattered into the air. Casey fell without a sound. The last thing he registered was the scent of the earth and the dirt of the dead-leaved ground. Kimbra lowered her gun and slowly walked over to his body. Night Thing was written and narrated by Richard Daniels. It was a pylon phase of production. For more information go to oculteriofalbion.com As yet unexplained podcast, written, performed, scored and produced by Wesley Smith we will be looking at some of the most famous and mysterious tales of the strange, paranormal and unexplained. If you are interested in the paranormal, then this podcast is for you. This show will delve into cases of UFOs, hauntings, folklore, murder, ghosts, historical mysteries and things that simply cannot be explained. Please consider liking, subscribing, sharing and even writing a review on whatever platform you use to listen to podcasts. As yet, unexplained.